Before we get into episode 47, I've just got some housekeeping notes. Today marks our first episode in December, which means it's donation time. Here at Outer Rim Reads, I donate $1 for every patron we have to charity at the start of each month. By the time I'm recording the intro, we have 11 patrons, which means I've donated $11 to Moms Demand Action. This is a grassroots movement striving for stronger gun laws in America in order to close the loopholes that jeopardize the safety of families across the country. Especially after the horrible tragedy in Oxford, Michigan, the need only grows greater to pass gun reforms in this country. As a future educator myself, I hate that I have to worry that school shootings here are far, far too common. We need to do better to protect our families, and Moms Demand Action works to that end every day. If you want to find out more about what they do, you can do so at MomsDemandAction.org. I also want to thank our incredible patrons who make this show possible. Your support of this podcast is truly amazing. Thank you so much. And as always, I want to give a huge shout out to our patron at the Lothal tier, Simon. If you want to join our patron family and get some awesome rewards, you can do so at patreon.com slash Outer Rim Reads. Now let's get into episode 47 and kick off our coverage of part two of Light of the Jedi. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode 47 of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through Star Wars novels across the canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In today's episode, we will begin part two of Light of the Jedi, discussing chapters 19 and 20, and I'm joined by not one, but two guests, Andres from Sithy Minutes and Gustavo from Triad of the Force. Andres, Goose, how are you both doing? I'm really excited to talk about some Light of the Jedi with you both today. Doing really good, man. Thanks for having us. Yeah, doing great. Thank you so much for having us. This truly was the the light of my day. Uh, <laughs> so I appreciate the the opportunity to revisit these chapters. They are some pretty good chapters from, from what I've read. I think uh, I was thinking about this earlier, how the first part of the book, it's a lot of quick, short, bursts of chapters you know i think a friend mentioned it as kind of like just kind of sequences of an action scene just like kind of spread out amongst the different storylines but here i think in part two is where it kind of starts to fit the description of more of a traditional star wars novel you know the longer chapters you know kind of getting more plot than a lot of fast-paced action so definitely a nice change of pace that i'm really excited to to talk with you both about today i'm really excited just to have two guests on as well it's been a while since i've had something like this before but uh even before we talk about light of the jedi and the two chapters that we've got today could you talk a little bit about both of your star wars journeys and then specifically how you came across light of the jedi and your experience reading uh what is Truly a fantastic book so far, but also very incredibly stressful. Could you just talk a little bit about Star Wars and the Light of the Jedi uh, from your journeys? Hey, I guess I guess I'll start since I got the cue uh, from Andres there. So <laughs> thank you. Well, yeah, for those who are not familiar, uh, I'm Try of the Force. We're a Puerto Rican focused podcast, so 
from what our description states, right? We're all the three of us Puerto Rican. So my first experience with Star Wars was growing up back home in our beautiful island. And it had to uh, do with my dad. He's the culprit from everything, at least from what I remember. It was probably early, mid-90s when the special editions were coming out in theaters. During their re-release, he did the mistake of uh, taking me to the movie theater on Sundays, as he usually did back in the day. And ever since then, there's been like no turning back. And it's been all Star Wars all the time for the longest time. From there, obviously obsessed with the movies. And it was prime time, right? Because I was, I think, around 96 or 97. And a couple of years later, uh, 99, we got episode one. So it's like it was a really good time to grow up as a Star Wars fan, besides now, I guess. And, you know, all the toys, all the things, all the expectations of like, okay, episode one blew my mind. Now let's Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. So it was a really good time for me as a Star Wars fan. I think... Uh, after starting college a little bit, things kind of fell off the radar a bit, a little more interested in other things of the social dynamic, I guess. Uh, but around 2015, when, the, uh, no, before 2015, when Disney had the acquisition of Lucasfilm and Episode 7 was announced, that mythical sequel trilogy was finally on the horizon after all the internet threads of Super Shadow and all those weird conspiracy websites about what Episode 7 was going to be about, the fact that we were going to have that finally kind of reignited that uh, fandom uh, within me. So after that, like Star Wars Celebration Orlando happened, so I went there with a couple of friends. And after that, was just like, okay, kept talking with my friends about, oh, we already talk about Star Wars on a pretty consistent basis, so why don't we just like get together and kind of make this a thing and do our podcast and that's how that came about so ever since then we kind of been doing that obviously with star wars celebration chicago which is where i'm living now that really boosted everything so that's kind of where the fandom for me came from and where it's at at this point and so that's kind of how i got into the high republic stuff too because I was already like more invested like in the Twitter dumb and the podcasting. So with the Project Luminous announcement, it's just like, okay, well, you got to know all the Star Wars news now, right? Because this is kind of like your side gig. <laughs> so with the Project Luminous announcement, it's like the expectation of what the High Republic publishing was going to be about, even though we didn't know it was going to be the High Republic at that point. So once it's announced, the first book, you know, by Charles Soule that we're going to be discussing today came out and just ignited that high republic revolution which i think is doing really good things for star wars i feel that with visions and ronin i think is a very good direction for where star wars needs to be going and i think we can talk about that when we're discussing chapter 19 specifically i think uh, but that's kind of the journey up until now until i'm here with you fine gentlemen yeah um i i have no idea when i first saw star wars born in 92 so it must have been on the background of a tv somewhere a vhs tape I, I don't know all i remember is that when my mother was dating my future stepfather i was so stoked because i had episode one the n64 racer and he had a big screen tv and i had just recently emigrated from uh, venezuela so i was like oh my god i'm gonna play a big screen tv in the united states because my mom's dating this dude who's got a big screen TV, like, let's go. And I saw those crappy graphics on that giant screen. And I was like, okay, like, I, I'm here for it. I already knew who Darth Vader was at the time of the prequel trilogy coming out. So that's my only inkling that 
I fell in love with something in the original trilogy and that got the bug. But yeah, ever since uh, Revenge of the Sith, I've just been like, oh my God, I'm I'm going to become a Star Wars nerd. Like I am a present day political nerd. I have legitimately read Supreme Court opinions for fun, um, especially during the 2016 to 2020 uh, Supreme Court justice year. So, you know, lots of fun stuff I just read. Uh, I watched C-SPAN in the summer when all of the sports leagues are over. Uh, so Star Wars is like my escape from that other fun thing that I consider. So for us with the with Sithy Minutes, it's really just blending the two of having Star Wars and politics because there are so many things that kind of bleed over. And as someone who grew up with the prequel trilogy and those were my first like movie theater Star Wars experiences, like they are political. You can't avoid it, right? The Trade Federation, it's not a planet that's attacking another planet. It's a corporation and, and the the technocrat union and all these different the villains. <laughs> yeah, the villains of the prequel trilogy are literally corporations. The more that you just read into Wikipedia articles, it's like, oh my God, like I literally grew up with a, a sci-fi version of a Senate drama. That's the Star Wars I align with the most. So, you know, that's where I am in my fandom and what I like resonate towards. Um, as far as Light of the Jedi, of course, just like Goose mentioned, like once you get in this game and, you know, Lucasfilm <laughs> is like Project Luminous, it's the next big thing. If you're looking for what comes after the Skywalker saga, like come on down. So it's like we have to, whatever it is, like we have to go all in. Thanks to the pandemic, Light of the Jedi got uh, pushed into January 5th of 2021 which is my birthday. So oh. I was like, I am buying Light of the Jedi. Uh, I have the out of print uh, variant cover mm-hmm. uh, edition. So I got the sweet socks that I occasionally wear for special occasions. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I I read it. I started, it was my birthday, I had the day off. I don't know what kind of fast shipping I got, but I had the next couple of days off. So I just literally binged through it because once I opened it up and started reading the chapters, I was just like, I'm hooked. I need to find out how this ends mm-hmm. and just went all the way through it. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a challenge to have to pace myself with, uh, with the nature of this season, you know, not uh, reading past what I record, but I'm really... Uh, Really looking forward to talking about these two chapters. And we do get introduced to Chancellor Lena So, who I've heard, you know, kind of mixed reviews initially. I think uh, Alberto from uh, Radio Rebellion back in episode one of the season had mentioned that she is a controversial character to, uh, to some in the fandom. So I'm really excited to talk about her a bit and the themes that we see from, I guess, her ambitions and her vision of the Republic. But kind of, I guess, without further ado, I could give my summary for chapter 19, and then we can talk about what goes on with Chancellor So. Chancellor Lena So stands in Monument Plaza on Coruscant, resting her hand on Umate, the tallest peak of a mountain now incorporated into the thousands of lower levels comprising the city planet. The Chancellor reflects on what the symbol of Umate means to her and to the Republic. So moves on to meet with an important group further into the park. Some Jedi, including Avar Chris, the spokesperson of the Outer Rim Territories, and others. After thanking the Jedi for their efforts in Hetzal, she informs the group of her tough decision to close much of the hyperspace around Hetzal until they can determine what happened to the Legacy Run and to avoid other ships meeting that same fate. 
She implores the group to find out what happened, and if hyperspace travel in general is safe anymore, and to do so before the acclaimed Starlight Beacon is unveiled to the Republic. You know, we've heard her name dropped a few times in the book so far. Uh, it, it was kind of surprising to me, at least, to kick off part two, which is uh, which is called The Paths with Lena So. But I guess before we even talk about the finer details of the chapter, what did you both think about chapter 19? Just any general impressions and thoughts uh, about what we got in this chapter? At least for me, I think chapter 19 was kind of a breath of fresh air in the sense that the first half of the book is so breakneck that it was nice to kind of take a moment to just pump the brakes, relax and talk, right? A lot of the things that people criticize about episode one was all the talking and all the political aspects of it but that's always been present to some degree in the original trilogy so to start part two of light of the jedi in that way was kind of i think important to kind of contextualize everything that was happening with the world building of action right that was happening in the first part and then set it in what the galactic conflict or galactic political situation is in the current time so i i I welcomed that like I had issues with the first part of the book and those first chapters because it was so breakneck and Charles Soul was kind of writing everything like a comic book, which obviously makes sense because he's a comic book writer, right? That it was kind of hard to kind of digest everything that was happening. And so after, after all of that, to take this time to get to know everything in a slower pace so that you can uh, familiarize yourself and be, uh, you know, breathing <laughs> instead of like, you know, uh, being out of breath was welcome. So I think after that, the book uh, was able to kind of find its pacing a little, a little better, at least in my opinion. And, you know, these two chapters specifically, I think, are pivotal in a sense to establish like the points of view of what's happening in, in terms of conflicts with the Republic. And then the next chapter with the Jedi in, you know, in a way. And I guess we'll discuss that further. Yeah, I, I would agree uh, with Goose. I just love the pacing of it being calmer. The beginning of the book read to me like a like a Michael Crichton novel. If you've ever read like Prey or even the original Jurassic Park, where he does this thing where it starts with you know five random people in totally different parts of either a city or a country or the the world, and then as you read more of the book, that just the timelines converge. So it definitely felt like that up at the front, but like I love that it was in Coruscant. I love that it opens up to the mountain because like. If you grew up in the prequel trilogy, if you grew up, well, yeah, I guess that's the only time we see Coruscant besides some uh, extended special edition CGI scenes. It's all city. There is no forest scene in in the prequel trilogy vibing on on Coruscant. So, like, to start with the peak of the mountain, and it's like, oh yeah, it's still open to fresh air, which we know is like not going to be the case because again, that that scene doesn't exist. And then see like where they talk about Chancellor So's great works, right? There's some things that we know are going to work, right? Like they mentioned Bacta, um, even in the beginning of the book, as being such a new technology and it's quintessential. Um, by the time you get to the Skywalker saga, like everyone knows what Bacta is. So seeing that, but there's also a mention of like the Mon Calamari Quarren Treaty that she's pioneering, and it's like, well, that's not going to work. Um, if you've read any of the comics or or know any of the backstory with uh, the Mon Calamari and the Quarren, like, so you see all these different pieces, and it's like some of it's going to stick and change the game because it's just foundational by the time you get to prequel and original trilogy, and other things are just not going to change. But there's still a lot of hope. 
and it's it's tragic in that sense but um it is also interesting to see like people attempting these things that we know aren't going to pan out but still being optimistic about it yeah i feel like there is definitely this sense of optimism with chancellor so and her vision for what she wants the republic to be whether that translates to the reality we can see already there's some cracks, uh, especially in some of the reactions to her decision to close the hyperspace lanes in this chapter and then moving forward. But then we also, at the end of the chapter, I guess w- when we get to it, we do see that there is some doubt within her that she does not kind of show to the public. Kind of, She has some inner reservations about just the, the nature of the galaxy as she perceives it and knows it to be true, but maybe tries to hide from the public perception. But I do want to start talking, at least to begin with this mountain. Uh, I was really, at first, you know, because it uh, beneath the chapter number, it says that we're on Coruscant, but I was still very confused about the fact that she was resting her hand on not the the summit, but like on part of this peak of uh, Umate, this this mountain. And it took me a second to realize, you know, what was going on. I thought it was really cool that. The rest of the mountain kind of runs through the, you know, the lower levels, I think some 5,000 levels, you know, lower. But I thought that was a really, you know, there's been a lot of uniqueness to a lot of what we've been exposed to in this book so far. But right off the bat, you know, seeing kind of this this mountain and the symbol that it kind of uh, means to many different people. But starting off on that note, it was just it was really cool and just very different and very much not was what I was expecting uh, at all for this peak to kind of be in Central Park of Coruscant. It was mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't anything like I expected, but I thought it was a really cool touch to see kind of how things were on Coruscant. Bef- you know, I hope it doesn't get like demolished, but, you know, we'd never see this again. But it's very unique to start off in, on this note. I want it to be uh, Dexter Jetzer's diner location, <laughs> like in my head canon. That's that ends up becoming that level, and uh, through the will of the force, uh, <laughs> he's he's making space omelets at the summit. So when he tells people like, "I am the best chef. I am at the top of the mountain on Coruscant." Literally, yeah. <laughs> there's a real estate agent somewhere in the background. He's like, "No, no, no! Like for real! Like in the kitchen." There's just a little bit that little dot yep, of, that's of dirt thinking. there. Yeah. That's actually <laughs> that's the <it>. summit. <laughs> but yeah, it, it really gave me like Mount Olympus vibes. Because they also very quickly describe her Targons, I believe, are mm-hmm. are the name yeah. of the species um, that are with her. So it's very much like Queen with her mythical lions by her side at the only mountaintop that you can find in this super futuristic robot city. And she's just like calm and peaceful around it. So it really gave me like, oh, these are the, the conversation of the gods. I think this is the first time that even Avar Chris gets greeted in such a way like post Hetzel. So it's the chancellor giving that first, like, Oh my God, thank you so much. Like the the universe would be so different if you and the Jedi didn't step in. It's that first kind of praise. So it really amps up this feeling of powerful beings in a powerful place, discussing the affairs of mere mortals who are reeling from this tragedy. So yeah, just, it was very fascinating to, to have the mountain and like just lend it that kind of air mm-hmm. yeah it's definitely what what you guys have been saying that it's coruscant you know a place that we're so familiar with but in the originals we didn't see it and then we're so familiar with it in the uh, prequel trilogies that when the sequel trilogy came out everyone was left wondering what where, where's coruscant so in a way the 
High Republic is filling that gap. But I appreciate that they do it with a twist, right? And that's kind of what the High Republic, I think, is kind of being known for. It's just like introducing something that you kind of know, but then giving it a little twist. But I really appreciate like coming here and then talking about these chapters because it gave me a chance right to come back and reread it. Because when you do your first pass of reading something, you know, you appreciate it for what it is. But when you go back, there's you pick up things that you didn't particularly pick up. And for me, this chapter was very poignant and kind of catching more depth of the symbolism of the mountain and then contextualizing that with also the conversation that everyone was having, especially with all the real world things that have been happening in our day-to-day lives right now, which I mean, I'm not going to get into that now, but specifically the mountain for me is just like, it's framed in two different ways, right? At the beginning of the chapter, she's talking about the peak of the mountain. And throughout the chapter, you're thinking that they're at the top of it. And the way it's always described is like the only piece of nature that is available on Coruscant that you can readily like travel to. And it's basically kind of like this holy space Uh, But then it's described that it's within this plaza with the replicas, not replicas, but like with the landscaping, trying to emulate the original landscape that was covering the base of that mountain. So in a way, they're describing like a simulation, right? So everything, it's it's post-truth. So like the mountain is not reality anymore. It's just a simulated reality. It's the reality is what's around it. It's not anything that's concrete to what the mountain is itself. It's just a symbol now. It's not what it once was. So I think that was very important in terms of what that conversation was happening then, because they're here trying to get this vestige of nature and the mountain, like this righteousness of what they're all discussing. But in the end, and that's why I like the shift towards the end of the conversation. In the end, it's all like a charade and like no one really knows what's real and what's not, because then when she looks up into the sky, all the buildings are towering over the mountain. And like that, what she said at the end, like, oh, world's alone in the dark, I thought was very important to kind of encapsulate that because, yeah, the mountain is not the peak. Yeah. The buildings are the peak. So the mountain isn't the reality. It's the built environment that's that reality. And it's that fiction, that imposition that is what's real. And it's not the pure, natural intention. So I thought that was really cool because, like, she's Lena. Lena is the, the mountain. But everything around her is the building that's just on its way to like oppress everything that she's trying to build. So I don't know. I think that way to introducing the specter of the mountain within the context of Coruscant, but also the storytelling uh, in the chapter was particularly clever. And I just, you know, I wish that that was something that was a little more prevalent, right? Like in a lot of this writing in the High Republic, we really need more of that metaphor, right? Because it's really rich and I really contributes to that storytelling. Yeah, I love that uh, kind of the clash between, you know, the kind of the pure natural intent, you know, of this mountain and how it does get overshadowed by the reality of what progress in, you know, quote unquote progress looks like compared to what is real and natural and how that stacks up against the realities of these choices. I think it was a symbol to of, of Umate to Chancellor So was the symbol of choice. And we do get into the many choices in front of her and how those will stack up against, you know, her vision for what she wants to happen, but then what will actually transpire. But I thought it was interesting when you know, we, we get a kind of a glimpse into her worldview here when she thinks about uh, the people that she's meeting with, this group of, of Jedi and politicians and Admiral Kronara as well, a bunch of different officials. She thinks of them as, quote, a group of some of the most powerful people on the planet 
and therefore the entire republic. And in a way, she could be right. You know, the people on Coruscant have the most influence than probably anyone else in the republic, but I was a little bit uncomfortable with how she's tying Coruscant itself as representative of the ultimate power of the Republic, and it kind of felt like she was dismissing the value of what other worlds hold that might not be as you know grandiose and and wealthy as Coruscant, but they still have value. But you know, it, it seemed here that she was kind of writing that off, where it's like whoever's on Coruscant and whatever Coruscant is, that's that's what the Republic is. That's what power is and it just it rubbed me the wrong way uh, just reading that description there yeah like i think i think there's definitely troubling th- i mean i'm a lena so apologist in a sense because i can you know we're reading this as you know as third persons right so we can see what she's thinking i mean not say we can read what she's thinking so we know that she's not being cynical right about the things that she's trying to do so that we know we're trying she's trying to do the right thing so that's why i'm able to be like okay well you know I can see the problems and we can definitely talk about them because there are a lot of troubling things, especially with like how she was talking to Senator Knorr. And we can talk about that in more detail because I think that's the most important conversation there. But you're absolutely right. And I think that's something that also transcends into like our real life because I think that's something that happens right in our day to day, be it work or being in our actual political system that people are elected into office and at the end they're always talking about the people and what's right for everybody but then it's just like oh it's just washington dc or it's springfield or it's whatever city you're in it's just it's just the people that are in the chamber that matter and we're only going to uh, govern for our interests uh, so i don't think like she's particularly inclined to only govern for like the one percent's interest but i think she only wants to, not only but she's focused on doing it from her lens and obviously her lens comes from Coruscanti privilege and not outer rim equality, which I think is the, the crux of the conversation here is when she's talking to Senator Knorr and then starts outlining that she wants to close hyperspace lanes at the expense of millions of people and countless star systems that are dependent on commerce. And she just writes it off as like, oh, the greater good. And don't worry, we'll just send them the scraps from our tables to make sure they don't starve. But... She thinks it's the right thing to do, but obviously it's not. So I think it's an interesting framing because then Senator Norris kind of framed as kind of the bad guy or the or the jerk here for trying to uh, go against her because she's well the point of view character in the in the in the chapter. But really, she's just doing what's right for his people. He's actually talking for them instead of what Lena's trying to do, which is like have people talk just for themselves instead of like for the group, right? I think. Um... The juxtaposition there is also noted with the mountain because she she talks about the way societies could choose heritage over progress represented here in Livingstone. And it got me thinking of like, she views from her point of view, the great works, you know, Starlight Beacon, and getting this disaster solved as progress, right? But it's progress in the sense that, oh, this is going to make people join the Republic. And the Republic, in that sense, represents that almost that heritage because what is a republic other than like essentially adding more territories and and getting that revenue to circulate in such a way that right that coruscant benefits that the core worlds and like yeah there's other benefits right they're like oh you'll have jedi on jakku Mm -hmm. don't don't you want jedi (laughs) on jakku 
but it's not as tangible as like literally so many buildings that it has engulfed the natural landscape of a planet. Like that's a lot of capital. If you, if you think about it, right? Like we have sprawling metropolises in, in, on this planet and that pales in comparison to the 5,000 plus levels of Coruscant in the high Republic era. So there's this weird mix of like, it's viewed as progress from that point of view. But I was like, there's also a heritage aspect because once you join the Republic, like there are rules to the Republic, which means potentially other systems would have to change their way of life to like adhere to Republic law. And at that point, the Republic isn't a gift. It's literally an an oppressor. I love that point where she's almost saying that heritage and progress are mutually exclusive. And I don't think that they need to be like, you don't have to sacrifice heritage for progress where mm-hmm. it's i think point of view and you know progress for who progress mm-hmm. like progress looks different you know for different people and different groups and different cultures and trying to impose republic progress might not be welcome to other worlds might not be great for other worlds you know w- with how you know their lives go and it's kind of like imposing what chancellor so thinks will be good but will that actually be the case in practice and i think that's definitely going to be a theme that i'm going to hold on to as i keep reading is is the vision and the intent and that what that actually translates uh, into but you both had mentioned the kind of the crux of this conversation which you know and i love uh Gus, how you were kind of uh you, you pointed out that in this chapter senator noor is written like and portrayed as this arrogant kind of jerk uh you know just the way that he's kind of dismissive of the jedi and kind of stepping you know i think soul wrote it as kind of mildly aggressively towards chancellor so when he's protesting this decision because you know she is choosing to, I think, close off some 500 parsecs of hyperspace around Hetzal in order to, or at least until they find out what happened to the legacy run. And, you know, from her point of view, from her perspective here, we can see why, you know, it kind of makes sense that this could happen to other ships. And we see the kind of devastation, you know, 20 million people gone in the blink of an eye in Abdalis and obviously all the carnage on in the Hetzal system. We see what's at stake if something like this happens again in some ways that is a valid approach but i think there is some real tension between what she thinks is the right thing here and what senator noor is bringing up that you know he's saying that there are hundreds of outer rim planets who depend on the trade and on the supplies that come through those hyperspace routes and lanes And it's really kind of striking language here when he says that closing that much hyperspace would, quote, strangle that part of the outer rim. It's not an easy decision from Chancellor So. I see where she's coming from. I see where he's coming from. It's just the tension there is very apparent. And I think just because this is a point of view chapter from Chancellor So, we might be inclined at first glance to side with her. You know, this guy is very frustrated and angry at her. But when you think about it, like you had mentioned, millions and millions of people depend on those supplies. And I I don't know. You know, I don't know the right answer here. Cause, you know, do I want like another 20 million people gone in a second? Like, obviously, like no. But then what that means closing off that space for for hundreds of planets and millions and probably billions of people, it was some some real 
tension between the two that could, you know, it spells out stakes for tons of systems. It's really hard. Yeah, I don't know if it's uh, intentionally coded in the characters and the situations. You know, I don't know if that's Charles Soule's intention was to have us, you know, have that uh, kind of political inquiry of the uh, ethics of Lena's decision making right i don't know if, like they were thinking that she's just purely good or if, like there's nuance to it but i mean everything that she's talking about benign or not right in the sense of her the point of view of her thinking it's an extension of colonialism right and you know as someone from from you know an island that's suffered colonialism from 500 years you know until right now i can't oversee it you know i mean i can't un i can't not see that that's a thing and i don't want to turn this uh, too political, right? Because we're talking about the book, but it's a lens that is always present in Star Wars. And when you're talking about these type of topics and present them in the way that you're presenting them, especially with like how the Outer Rim has always been uh, characterized and not just the movies, but the books. And then you kind of bring these uh, political conversations from Coruscant, right? Which Coruscant is Washington, D.C., you know? So, and then they're pushing down these decisions that affect the south side of Chicago, right? Or affect Guam or affect American Samoa or something like that in a negative way while protecting the mid-core or the core worlds. It makes your mind go like, oh, this is this is not sci-fi. This is real life. So for me, when like we're looking at her decisions about closing those hyperspace lanes in conjunction with like what that would mean for the outer rim worlds i can't help but think it's just like well is she really thinking about what's best for them or is she just like kind of protecting the core privileges right so it's just obviously it's one-sided who it's affecting she's closing those lanes off to maybe save some lives but definitely affecting millions more so i mean i'm still i still like her don't get me wrong i just think that there's a lot of moral <laughs> moral questions that we have to uh, address about her and i think that's not just something that we have to do about these fictional characters but also about real world people that we might like but still be able to say like hey i like you but that thing you did may be questionable that's what's interesting about the decision because even in the meeting right they admit that no one in that room of highly connected, very, you know, lofty people, uh, none of them have any idea how this is working, right? Like how this happened. She openly questions, like, we need to make sure and find out if hyperspace itself is safe. So it's a big question, but she still only shuts down the 500 parsecs around Hetzel. So she's like, is hyperspace like fundamentally broken? Well, while we're trying to figure that out, let's only put a fence here. Because it's it's fundamental to the rest of our economy and whatnot. So it is very interesting to have that lofty question put up and then another side shut down. It also recolors the Abdallah's response and, and that chapter because like hyperspace lanes being closed cuts both ways. So like the people in that 500 parsecs, whatever the fallout of this of the emergences are, they will deal with it alone until the Republic can figure out what's happening and how to prevent it because they can't put a distress signal and hope that a family on a nearby system can jump in and, and pick them up real quick and fly off. Like they'd be shut down and you can't go sublight. It take too long. So it's, it really turns it more into a wild West, but yeah, which is why I think it's interesting that Senator Knorr is the one raising these concerns because he's a Senator from where from Sereno 
who's from Sereno, Count Dooku, one of the planets from the Confederacy. Bam! So I think you're just like laying those seeds of like that dissatisfaction with the Republic in that sense. Like the Confederacy is already starting here. Maybe not outright, but with this whole situation, like you can see how systems are are feeling that the Republic is not working for them. Yeah. I, lo- I love those those points that you both brought up, you know, uh, on one hand, you know, the possibility of something going wrong, you know, it like something that could happen with the result of that then being some real consequences that that will happen for millions of people. And then also I hadn't, I hadn't thought about the consequences of what happens to the worlds within those, within that closure. I literally had to take a moment because that's, that's true. Like they, they will be trapped. There's nothing that will be able to be done effectively. You know, it'll be like exactly like Abdallah's with, you know, on Hetzal, they were fortunate to have the Republic and the Jedi helping, but with Abdallah's, there was no one. And for these planets there, if something does happen, if there's another emergence, which I think in this chapter, there have already been 15 more, you know, what happens to them? It's uh, the stakes that I thought were already high have now just been <laughs> increased even more. It's uh, it, it really, it could be, it could be catastrophic. Even, I mean, even if there are no more emergencies, just being cut off from that essential trade and supplies, you know, while the core worlds will be fine, you know. The worlds, you know, in the in the outer rim, you know, will will suffer while while the core worlds and the and the privileged people like take their time to solve what's going on. There's some real consequences on the other hand, you know. Kind of a, a another kind of central point to what is, I guess, being reflected on and talked about uh, by Chancellor. So in the group here is this starlight beacon, which had been name dropped. A few times before, I hadn't exactly known what it was uh, at all. You know, uh, I've just heard of a galaxy-changing space station, and here we get some clarity, or at least I get some clarity, about what it is. And Chancellor So uh, refers to it as a, quote, first responder to any Republic or Jedi issue in the Outer Rim. Uh, And that basically the Starlight Beacon would more or less be a physical manifestation of the Republic into the Outer Rim. I think it would be, and as she talks about or thinks about it as an embassy and a fortress, a projection of security, a Jedi outpost with, I think, their largest contingent outside of the temple. It'll have cultural spaces acting, I think, almost like museums from what I was gathering, um, communication relays to kind of boost transmissions nearby and state-of-the-art uh, medical facilities. And so it's it's got it all, you know, spreading culture, technology, everything in Chancellor So's uh, perspective. On one hand, sounds great. You know, some seemingly really good intentions. And I think, again, kind of the, the distinction between intent and what it actually will mean. Because on the other hand, you know, I think we're reminded of how so is a politician. You know, she's thinking that the Starlight Beacon and the other planned stations in the Beacon Network, so there will be more, apparently, there will be more, will be how she'll be remembered. And so here, I think at the heart of it, in a way, is her concern with her legacy, her reputation. And, you know, at the center of all is kind of her concern with how she will be perceived by others. And then also, you both had had mentioned, you know, the colonization aspect to what's going on here. There are some, from what I read, some massive colonization vibes here, where in her mind that it's a guarantee that whatever the Republic will bring to the Outer Rim will be better than what's already there. That, you know, almost everyone will have to be grateful 
for what incredible technology is being introduced there. It's, you know, kind of thinking, all right, what you have, it's fine, but but we're bringing the real deal. Like, you're going to thank us for what we're introducing here. And that, I think back in chapter one, I kind of got some colonization vibes where it's like, you know, seeking better opportunities in the outer rim, you know, leaving you know, kind of a parallel to colonizing the American West. And here, again, we see the intent of this vision that so has, but then it does come with those implications of colonization. And that that was just a big red flag for me. It's like, what we're bringing here, it's, it's just inherently better than anything that they could have in the Outer Rim. And it was, um, it was just striking. It was striking. I mean, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because yeah, I, I look at it like, as an architect, and I, I want built things to help communities, right? Uh, so for me, Starlight Beacon can be something that can, it cuts both ways, especially like in how you frame it or weaponize it, right? And I think the problem that Starlight Beacon has is that it has weaponization undertones, especially by having Jedi and military envoys there. Because if you took those two things out, the concept is kind of, it's really like a trading outpost and a, it's a cultural, a floating cultural attache, right? For um, systems in the region. So that concept in, in theory, I have no problem with. And if you've seen the model that Christina Ariel put on Twitter for, <laughs> for Starlight Beacon, it's cool. It looks dope. The problem that Starlight Beacon then has, I think, is when you like inject the Jedi and the Republic Security Forces or whatever they're not, Republic Defense Coalition, sorry, into it. That's when it kind of starts feeling a little troublesome because then it's just like, okay, what are your actual intentions here, especially when you're in space of uh, systems that may or may not want to have your presence here? And what does that mean for systems that absolutely don't want that presence there? So it's kind of weird because then you're you're imposing yourself and you're kind of imposing a way of life and like you were saying Andrew, you're kind of then saying that this is better than what you have i understand the whole sharing of ideas and like hell you know we by sharing we can improve on everything that's cool but when you impose then i think that's where there's conflict and when things are not as benign as they seem on the surface it's also to me the first misstep of the jedi like again planting that seed for the prequel trilogy where the first step forward of the Republic in the Outer Rim is also coupled with the most Jedi outside of Coruscant that the galaxy has ever seen in one place. So it is fundamentally like, like Chancellor So is concerned about making sure Starlight Beacon is launched and ready to go on the date that she threw on the calendar. But by putting the Jedi there, they're also in a way concerned that it also is ready they may not be as concerned about the date because you know the will of the force whatever it, right. it'll happen when it happens um whenever master yoda says it's ready that's when it's we'll kind of it. pretentious thing to say on their part he's like dude come on eh. <laughs> yeah hey we're trying to come you know ahead of schedule and under budget here so none right. of this will of the force nonsense even the emperor cared about these things in return of the jedi it's like <laughs> hey emperor's coming back to put you back on schedule eh. that's right that's right yeah the sith the sith keep you on time um <laughs> No will of the force. <laughs> yeah, no will of the force for them. Um, they're fundamentally, they're still caring about this, right? Like they're they're still, you know, uh, Avar Chris didn't really care to be at the inspection meeting at Starlight Beacon, but she showed up. 
and she like took in everything that the administrator said and was like, yeah, okay, it's ready. Awesome. Cool. There's a lot of seeds of stuff that doesn't work out. And Andrew, it's, I love that you brought up her concern about her legacy because as I read that chapter, even the first time, um, because she talks about Bacta and everything else right before, I'm like, this is also something that's going to fail. Like, miserably like luke grows up on tatooine and has no concept of starlight beacon right job of the hut like all these other characters like there's no reference of at any point like oh the wreckage of this great beacon or outpost for the republic but the huts exist in high republic space so it's like something mm-hmm. is going Their to legacy happen <laughs> yeah i was like there are there are characters and and groups that are back there like but even obi-wan right like even prequel trilogy jedi no reference um of the beacon network so it's fascinating that this is where both the jedi and chancellor so have some level of super vested interest and if you've seen any other star wars there is no reference to this so it's just like man this this won't last yeah, it's the again the clash between what the vision is and if it will succeed, if it will last. And you know, from our vantage point, sorry, Chancellor So, like I didn't hear your name until I read this, you know, until I read this book. You know, there's <laughs> <laughs> you were not remembered. Uh, you know, it's but I I do find it very very interesting that you both point out that the largest concentration of Jedi outside of the temple will be on this you know, first responder station on this, you know, cultural center. It also has like a small private army of the Republic, you know, of the, you know, highest trained, you know, not yet military force, but fighters in the Republic will just conveniently be there, you know, and and I have to wonder if there is some pushback from some of these worlds who might not want the Republic to intervene and impose themselves, you know, on their worlds and their cultures if kind of anything that goes against the Starlight Beacon and the Republic's intentions will be met with force by the right. Jedi, you know, where I, I do have to seriously wonder if that will go horribly wrong, where, you know, kind of uh, if the will of the force will start to be kind of conflated with the will of the Republic in some mm-hmm. Jedi's mm-hmm. minds. Because yeah. I think as we'll talk about uh, in the next chapter, different Jedi's perception of their role in the galaxy, they can be very different and sometimes troubling. So I do have to to wonder about that. You know, she leaves the group with the most important question that she has there, which is, you know, what happened on Hetzel and and why did it happen? You know, they need to know, you know, if hyperspace is safe, you know, and again, how they just close off that small section of hyperspace to find out if hyperspace in general is is unsafe. But, um, you know, she does want them to have this figured out by when the Starlight Beacon is unveiled uh, and made public in 30 days, she says. So uh, yet again, you know, how we, in part one, were introduced to a, a ticking timer, you know, a clock ticking. The clock is ticking yet again, 30 days to figure this out. Otherwise, the perception of the Republic, again, her concern with how the Republic is perceived by others will falter and they'll be kind of considered uh, not to be as strong as she wants them to be perceived as. And as the meeting is closing, she reflects once more on Umate, uh, you know, as the meeting is drawing to a close. And I'll just read the passage here of what she's thinking, that there is a second meaning to her that Umate has, that she would never speak out loud to others. And this is, you know, what she keeps guarded to herself. Quote, the meaning was this, there was nothing so big it could not be swallowed up, nothing so strong it could not be humbled, 
nothing so tall it could not be made small. Not a mountain and not the Republic. And, you know, I guess as as we know how things end up, you know, in the Skywalker saga and all that, definitely some foreshadowing, you know, how the Republic will fall just like... Twice you know, in a row. <laughs> right, twice in a row. <laughs> it's, it's consistent about that, you know, as... Any great thing, you know, any any empire, any republic, you know, can and sometimes will uh, fall. And I just thought that was a very, it's very interesting how the the contrast between her outward portrayal of hope and this, you know, these visions of what she wants the republic to be, and then these inward doubts that she thinks and is very almost certain that just like Umatse, which was once this great sprawling mountain on Coruscant that just get then gets, you know, shadowed out and crowded out by the, you know, massive constructions, you know, of the Republic on, on Coruscant, how the Republic could very well meet the same fate. And it was a very interesting note to, to end the chapter on. It's a good in- introspection because it's important, I think, for characters that are so certain, yes, in a to- storytelling perspective, right, to be shown that they aren't just a monolith (laughs) and that they aren't just the one dimensional thing that we are uh, shown from, you know, from their veneer, but there's something uh, behind it. So it's, it's good to see that doubt. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a, as Yoda would say, it's a natural part of life, right? We all have like those doubts. And I think it's incumbent upon us to how we deal with that doubt, that it was going to define the things that we do. And like, into your point, I mean, her doubt turns out to be, what what happens, right? It's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way because some of the things that she's doing, benign or not, are the things that are kind of setting the wheels in motion for the Galactic, not Galactic Civil War, for the Clone Wars. Good job, Lena, I guess, in terms of having that introspection, but bad job in following that gut and not doing those things. It's, it's the Qui-Gon Jinn, always a bigger fish. And she doesn't know what it is yet, but she's like, we could mess this up royally. So it's nice to see that awareness of like knowing that her decisions do have consequences. And if she makes enough mistakes in a row, there is no system, you know, quote unquote, too big to fail. Um, <laughs> it's, anything can fall and she knows that so she's like i get to make a certain amount of mistakes as the chancellor of the republic but like just like this mountain is now a a synthetic plaza like we can become a relic of the past that you see in a gift shop or you know a a recreation of like this was life under the republic whoa and it's just a museum exhibit so and and that whole thing uh, just to kind of circle back to starlight beacon and everything that she's doing with like all her great works right it just reminds me of the of what vision said like i don't know if it was in one of the avengers movie or whichever where like they're talking about all these like threats that are coming into the world and vision rightly says that their very strength invites challenge so in a way like when lena is like building starlight beacon by weaponizing it with the jedi she's inviting the Nile or wh- or whatever threat or the huts or whoever ends up like doing whatever they want in that area to come and challenge them. If they left it alone or maybe had come in with a UNICEF or something, maybe that wouldn't have happened. But when you bring in, you know, the army, people get angry because you don't want a foreign army in your, in your, in your space. She's done that herself or so it could seem. Cause you know, yeah, I guess, uh, at the end of part one, we were introduced to the Nile. We know that they're out there, and we know that they are capable of great works of their own. Uh, just you know, very uh, 
in a very destructive way. Uh, and so I, I, that's a really good point that even just the presence of, even if she's not meaning for the Jedi to, you know, wage war on whoever they encounter, just their mere presence could, like you say, invite that challenge just by the nature of just power struggles and dynamics just in in life, you know, in, in our galaxy or in any galaxy. So just a lot of setup here for what could go right and what could go horribly wrong. A lot of questions to be asked and I'll wait to see those answers. But, uh, you know, we do kind of shift back to Hetzal again in chapter 20. So I can give my summary for chapter 20 and then we can talk about Elzarman and uh, what he's doing there. On the third horizon, Elzarman observes dozens of droids putting the legacy run back together using salvaged pieces of the ship. As 18 more emergences of the ship's fragments have occurred outside of Hetzal, the Jedi hopes to know how bad things could yet be if they can know how much of the ship is still missing. However, Senator Noor grows increasingly impatient at the Jedi's efforts, demanding swifter and more decisive action to find out what caused the Legacy Run's fate, so as to sooner open the now-closed Outer Rim hyperspace routes to aid suffering worlds cut off from trade and supplies. Kevin Tarr requests more droids from the Republic, noting that they can try and locate the Legacy Run's flight recorder system to better understand what happened. Meanwhile, Mon and Avar Chris resolve to find out if anything is wrong with hyperspace on a larger scale. So we're back. Uh, didn't take long. We're back in Hitsal. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of memories from. Why does uh, everyone want to go one. back to Hitsal? <laughs> right? <laughs> Why? <laughs> I don't. But here we are. You know, on on the third horizon, and they're trying to you know find these solutions to the new mission uh, on their plate. But before we even talk about chapter twenty, what do you think about? the chapter and and now kind of uh, learning that uh, Mon and Avar Chris are you know have this new mission and are trying to uh, to solve these problems what did you uh, what do you think I just love the fact that even with the Jedi at the height of their power Senator Nor and other species clearly don't under like stand or have a concept of like what a Jedi does because he's very much living in in the standard mindset of someone right who can't tap into the song of the force or or the forest of the force or whatever however they perceive it and it's like hey we only have 30 days and you're literally staring at droids putting a ship back together like what are you doing i i was told you were going to be incredible and elzarman's just like don't worry about it don't worry. like when it happens it's going to happen but right now i'm tugging at some little questions and like you just you just want to understand how the force works so I, I do love that of like, oh, great. Like even back then, uh, like at least we, you know, we kind of explained that away in later films because it was just like, oh, Palpatine killed all the Jedi. No one really talks about the force. Like, of course, it sounds foreign to them. But like even at their height, people are just like, uh, aren't you supposed to be like saving the universe and stopping sh the, the metal from falling out of the sky? And Elzer's like. That's not what we actually are, but I appreciate, I can understand where you would get that from. Well, it, it ties back to <laughs> Clone Wars Season 7, right? And when Ahsoka is with the Martez sisters and she sees that the view of the Jedi between the normal populace, 
right? The ones that live in the lower levels, not the Echelion, right, of Coruscant, don't particularly have a favorable view of the Jedi, at least in, during the Clone Wars, because they started the war in their mind anyway. So, like, I can appreciate that extension of that thought here with the high republic where it's the opposite since there's really no war people don't really know the jedi except in a mythical sense it's like oh they're a thing that exists and this is what i think they are but since they don't really you know they don't help me get my cat out of the tree then they're not helping me so like i've never met one so i don't really know what they do and apparently there's no wikipedia in the star wars galaxy so people really don't know anything about anything beyond the things that they do uh, but uh, this chapter, I mean, obviously, I didn't like it as much as chapter 20 because I think there was a lot to digest from chapter 20. Uh, so, I mean, 19, sorry. Chapter 20 is kind of a, an extension of that, but from kind of a, a, a lighter extension, but from the point of view of the Jedi. So there's kind of two thi- uh, two takeaways that I have from it. It's that conversation between Avar and, and Elzar, which is the conflict within them of which is the conflict of the jedi as a whole at least to me of like how to use the force and what it means to be a jedi and then what you were saying andres what uh, senator nor and regular people need and how the jedi react to that so first to talk about senator nor since we were already talking about all the political things from chapter 19 i think the interesting thing is like he's still characterized as a jerk right <laughs> as a pushy guy as an ignorant guy that's like fighting against our heroes but really all he's just advocating is again his people it's like how do we help the people that are in need that need supplies that need to go on with their lives that kind of need it right now because right now they're suffering because the jedi are taking their sweet time and what's the jedi response to that it's like what we were talking about in chapter 19 is oh the will of the force right they're using patience at the expense of the needing right so the jedi jedi affairs are more important than what people need and like our investigation takes precedence over the expediency and i understand that some when you want to do something you need to do it right and sometimes doing it right means you need to take your time but when there's millions of people like on the hook for something you kind of not to say you need to cut corners but you need to make sure that like the greater good is addressed and them you know taking the the what happens to the legacy run can take longer and they can pause that so they can help more people so i thought that was like an interesting conversation between them which again leads to the downfall of the jedi the self-absorptness and their detachment from the regular populace and their self-absorptness, right, to only care about the high-level investigation or the high-level mission or whatever a Coruscant or the Senate needs of them to do will take precedent over what regular people need. And I think this is obviously will snowball into uh, the prequel trilogy. But between Avar and Elzar, I think the big takeaway, at least for me, is that those seeds are there of discontent within the Jedi. And Elzar, for me in this chapter anywhere, reminded me somewhat of Qui-Gon Jinn. You know, he's kind of like the maverick <laughs> in, a, in a sense. He's questioning uh, what it means to, how not what it means to be a Jedi, but what it means to use the Force. Because uh, Avar preaches more restraint and how to use the Force. And he's like, well, if we can use the Force, we should use the Force, obviously, for good hopefully he doesn't say that afterwards but i hope that was the message yeah i i really uh and and we'll get to this when we talk about uh, his interaction with senator noor where 
you know, Chancellor So has given this 30-day deadline, you know, for, you know, to, to have everything solved by the time the Starlight Beacon is unveiled. But from what we find out from Senator Noor uh, later on in the chapter, every day leading up to that deadline have real consequences for the people who are now shut off by the hyperspace closure. But you, know, you had mentioned kind of the the it's not really a, a clash between Chris and Mon, but you know there is some tension between you know their perceptions of how to use the Force, and I guess you know that translates into what it means to be. Uh, a Jedi, you know, one of the wreckage pieces that they're putting back together uh, from the legacy run is moving out of place, and Mon just casually uses the Force to move it back into its, you know, position. Nothing kind of a harmless thing. Where, you know, Avar Chris, who is there with him, as we find out, uh, he she notices, and you know, he gives a a wink at her, and just as we got insight into Chancellor, so as a politician. We do get some insight into Elzarman and as a Jedi. Uh, quote, he knew Avar thought he used the Force for frivolous purposes from time to time, but he couldn't understand the viewpoint. If you could use the Force, then you should use the Force. What, you were supposed to save it for special occasions? And that seems mildly problematic to me. And maybe some hints that you were saying, uh, likening him to, you know, kind of a maverick, uh, you know, kind of some rogue nature there. You know, based on that, you know, if you can, then you should use this power. Just because you have power doesn't mean you have to wield it. But with Mon, it seems that he thinks that, you know, should be the case to wield the force if you can. Based on that, if there were to be a Jedi in the High Republic now to go too far, kind of like Anakin or Rail Avaros from, you know, Master and Apprentice, my bet would kind of be on Elazar Mon, just based on this. You know, if you can, then you should. I think it reminds me of, uh, I think there was a passage from Master and Apprentice when, um, uh, gosh, I forget her, I forget her name, uh, one of the characters that's asking, you know, why does the Zerka Corporation enslave people you know we you could use droids for more efficient you know labor you know why do you enslave us and the droid says because we can you know and that because we can use this power it gave me i don't know if it's like a necessarily a red flag from elzarman but i i thought it was kind of problematic of his philosophy there i agree with you because i think it harkens back to you know uncle ben with great power comes great responsibility and that type of conversation but it also goes to like uh, this philosophy of like righteousness i think that a lot of people take to uh, the extreme and i think it's a lot of like it's christian based i think where it's just like well you can't do anything that's like pleasurable because that's bad and, you know, it's I don't think any truth is in any extreme. There's something there's true and like truth in both points of view, but it's usually like in the middle. And like, yeah, I think he should use the force when he wants if it's not harmful to himself or others, like putting the hull back. Sure. Why not? If it's to push a cat off a ledge, maybe not. You know, it's a uh, it's about like finding like what's the appropriate way to like do anything uh, There's definitely definitely like a, a big conversation because we can like take that and apply it to anything, right? It's like, what am I going to eat today? What am I going to watch? Like, uh, what am I going to do? Like all of these decisions that we make every day could be taken to like that level. It's like, should I be like doing something that could potentially like be abused? And I think the answer to that is like, it's complicated. Yeah. 
absolutely. Because the I was thinking of um, Avar Chris feels like a a Last Jedi Luke like light um, as far as like oh only use it when we absolutely must and and otherwise we can't interfere because that's the song of the Force. And then Elzar Man is that like Anakin Skywalker. Qui-Gon, if you feel that he stepped out of line in forcing the council to train Anakin, because, you know, you, you can have that argument of like, he should have just maybe let it go uh, and let Anakin just be Anakin somewhere. You know, it's like, okay, th- there's a there's a happy medium somewhere. And I think Avar mentions it towards the end uh, as far as like why she brought uh, Elzar onto the group where she mentions, I'm good at, at anticipating problems. And Jedi Knight Elzar Man is really good at finding solutions. Um, so she's, she's trying to like, knows where her weak spots are and is like, this will be the best Jedi to kind of complement what I'm trying to do. But it is nice seeing that like okay you're attempting to take two totally different viewpoints and and blend them together into what should be the right solution which implies that neither of them can actually make the right solution like that's the other thing that i think about of like galaxy disaster that requires the best of the jedi and there's not like a one jedi they send they're like oh we have to blend these two leadership styles and maybe that's like the best chance that we can kind of pull this out it's not a specialized jedi in in any capacity maybe in some way not very reassuring you know (laughs) but it's on on one hand it's you know you gotta be humble to admit where your weaknesses are uh that's a good point where they in some ways are very clashing figures in in what they their being of a of a jedi and that looks very differently for either of them and how they do what they do you know senator noor is there as we had mentioned again he is written to be very frustrating very panicked there's almost this element of hysteria about him from just how he is written in this chapter from the perspective of uh elzarman and you know he is complaining that you know you're not doing enough and still sticking to his stance from the previous chapter that the Republic is doing harm to the Outer Rim worlds with this hyperspace uh, closure. Let's see if I can find uh, the passage here. That he's already hearing reports of, quote, hoarding on a number of worlds and the economic impact mounts with every passing day. Again, it's this important theme of, you know, the suffering of the Outer Rim worlds because of this closure and the tension between like those who can afford for the lanes to close and those who don't have that you know they can't afford for that to happen and i thought it was really you know it's it's almost like a throwaway line here i think elzarman literally shuts him up after he says this but he asks them if one of those fragments hit the starlight beacon would they be acting with more urgency? Mm. And on on one hand, from his perception, maybe like a little bit unfair because he can't, you know, he doesn't know what the Jedi are really doing. You know, there's that, you know, he, he can't just by nature of not being, you know, force sensitive like that. But that's a really good point. And I have to think, based on how invested chancellor so is with the starlight beacon how even mildly invested you know avar chris is you know with the starlight beacon and this urgency to meet this deadline if they would be acting differently if it's like oh you know the outer rim world's like uh you know they'll be okay after we've solved this problem but if something hit the starlight beacon it was it was very pointed but i think very valid 
from Senator Noor. And it speaks to the weakness too of the of the Jedi, because when you think of that question and go to the prequel trilogy, it's the Jedi were perfectly content with the Clone Wars to to kind of play out, right? Like, oh yeah, we gotta help all these planets, do what we can. Hopefully there's a resolution. But episode three is like when they steal the Chancellor, it's technically no different than any other day, right? In the Clone Wars, it's it's just the the fighting is happening in the core, in the heart of the Republic. And the one thing that could have helped all the Jedi in that film was patience of like, stop and think about what you're about to do and think if there's a better way to do it. But because it's happening on Coruscant, they are not thinking and they're just like, we got to go. We got lightsabers. We can jump past any defense that anyone throws up. Let's just run in there and, and bust some heads open. And here it's, you know, it's a pointed question. It's a question that comes from not knowing what the Jedi do, but it is also speaking towards that weakness of like, you are calm when you need to be. And yes, maybe there is a, a value in training yourself to constantly be calm. But the only other frame of reference that Senator Nor has is Avar Chris floating in the sky and like thousands of Jedi across the entire galaxy pooling all of their like monk juice together or whatever Senator Nor thinks it was to physically move a hurtling object in space time in onto a different core. So it's like he's seen them use, you know, go super Saiyan or, or whatever <laughs> other fandom you want to bring in. And now he's like, you're just lifting a five pound weight. Like what is what's going on? And the only difference was like the Republic happened to be nearby and they're like, Oh, this could affect us. Like, damn it. Like get all the Jedi together. I mean, it's, it's that the question to that answer is if the Jedi would have reacted differently or with more haste the answer is a, a, a rotund yes obviously and we, i mean and we don't really need to like uh, deconstruct the jedi to figure that out we just need to look into the real world and see how governments react to uh, disasters when it suits their needs or it doesn't i mean uh, when hurricane maria happened in puerto rico was the u.s response towards uh, an island that they have a stranglehold quick and efficient the answer is no. I mean, there's still blue tarps uh, over Puerto Rico, but what is the response to any mainland state quick, efficient, maybe not, but at least quick? Um, <laughs> the answer is yes. Uh, so like we know from real world situations that when it, it suits the interests of the people that are in power, the, re the response will be different. It will be swift and for the most part efficient. So if something did happen, a starlight beacon, and there's a Jedi temple there, you can bet your ass that the Jedi would have been a little more active and less uh, patient in how they respond to that uh, crisis. Yeah. Feels like a Hurricane Sandy versus Hurricane Katrina response mm. statewide. Yeah. Of, yeah. Like, there's still blue really tarps. Is. I was in New Orleans last week and there's still blue tarps over there yeah. too. So kind of goes to show. I mean, I love the connections you know, first with Revenge of the Sith, I did I hadn't thought about that. Where it's like, you know, you, st you strike at Coruscant, you know, the the core, you know, the center of the Republic. You know, uh, politically speaking, that's when, you know, you really turn up the gear to twelve. And then also, the real world connections is it's, uh, and I think it's important to, you know, in the books that we read in this literature, and and I love that we're able to make these connections. Uh, for very pressing issues and very real issues. Like you're saying, there's, you know, you can still see the blue tarps that are there from just the lack of 
urgency, efficiency, effort, you know, but then if something happens to, you know, New York City, that's, you know, where or Washington, D.C., that's where you really, you know, turn up the gear to 12. It's um, it's troubling, you know, and and like Noor is saying here that the consequences are already being felt. You know, there's there's already chaos and they're not even not even like a day or two in to this deadline. And there's already some really <laughs> severe consequences. Um, yeah. The question that he asked, I think, you know, it's really unfortunate that he's kind of being written off in the way that he is, I guess, again, just the point of view and perspective of Mon, but I think he he does ask a very valid question and, you know, to make those connections in the Star Wars universe and then outside as well is the way of things, you know, to protect one's own interests, you know, and if it uh, to not have the same urgency if if it's elsewhere. And bear in mind, they're they're monks who are saying for light and life, surrounded by politicians saying we're all the Republic. And Senator Nor's the only one in the room who's like, okay, well, millions are dying. So uh, this would be a great time to protect light and life. And the Jedi are like, calm down. Yeah. Like protecting light and life for who? Again, like it's, you know, progress for who, you know, the, what this vision is, you know, for for who are we talking about? And, you know, as we have gathered, as we have seen, as as we have read, it seems to be in, you know, for the, the the center of those mantras and these visions are for those with influence and power and wealth and it's and and people are suffering like you're saying already people are suffering i did think you know because because elzarman uh does a very bold and shocking move where he literally shuts senator Noor up by placing his hand over his mouth just to literally just shush him right there and you know it was very shocking, kind of cringe as well. Uh, you know, he does seem kind of very roguish in nature, uh, you know, already. He's thinking to himself, quote, sometimes it was important to remind people that no matter how important they thought they were, they were, in fact, just people, which is pretty ironic coming mm. <laughs> from a Jedi who thinks who seems to think so highly of himself and his force abilities and his ability to, to use this power just because he can. And to think that where it's like, you know, you gotta just remember, you're, you're just human, dude. It's like, it seemed very ironic. I'm just, I don't know. He's kind of rubbed me the wrong way in this chapter, especially with this emphasis on and this focus on him. I just also just didn't like how he handled that. It was effective, I guess, if you wanted him to stop talking. But again, it's like, you know, he he's bringing up these valid concerns, these valid points for people who are suffering the real life consequences of their patience in this moment and it's kind of emblematic of maybe the republic's perception of these outer outer emeralds where it's like it's just quiet while we do our Mm. thing you know and it's just i think it you know the the physical implication of what happened also carries the larger metaphor where you know the republic is you know not as concerned with these valid points that are being brought up from people who are suffering day by day and minute by minute my question about that is is that intentional from Charles Soule? Like, is he trying to make us see Elzar and Lena So like in this questionable light? Or when it was written, was that something that didn't cross his mind? He said, like, oh, he's just an annoying guy. And like, he's a virtuous person. He's trying to get him to shut up so he can get on with his work. Like, uh, I'm not I'm not sure. I get vibes that all of the these undertones that we're kind of deconstructing here are kind of unintentional. But that's just kind of my intuition. I don't know if anyone else has gotten different vibes from that. Yeah, I would say at that point, at least at this point in Light of the Jedi, like 
when I finished my first read through, I just loved how fresh these Jedi were and it felt like it really was them at the height. So I think maybe the High Republic is really just a lot of seeds being planted that will mature in, you know, the subsequent 200 some odd years. So Elzar's maybe like, I can see him being part of that spark. I, I don't know to your point, uh, Goose of like how intentional of like, Oh no, this is the beginning of it. Charles soul wanted to to go into, but but yeah, it just it shows it shows that arrogance, right? Like, because again, I'm I'm every time I read something new, High Republic, I'm always like, how does this translate to like prequel trilogy Palpatine and how he understands the Jedi? Because he plays them like a fiddle, so I'm like, he knows what notes to play, um, which means he must have studied kind of how things went down in their order. So like, part of me is is wondering like, is this Elzar is the way that he moves done in such a way that you can see how you can push a Jedi's buttons and, and get them to kind of make the wrong answer or take the wrong stance if you kind of line things up just so. Because Palpatine literally sneers at Yoda that his his arrogance blinds him um, and he's so confident in his victory because of that. So it's just like, is this some of that seed is that maybe more what Charles soul was trying to get across. Not that like Elzar man is good or bad inherently, but like there's a seed of like one of the prominent Jedi in this era happens to have a little bit of a, of a self-centered or like an arrogant streak or like it's, it's a flavor uh, in his profile because people emulate right their their heroes or their mentors and stuff. So all of these characters, they'll be long dead by the time the order is like a corrupt, like half version of itself, but someone is emulating bits and pieces of what they're picking up, right? Like maybe Yoda takes Avar Chris's idea of like not really meddling and that creates the Yoda that you see in prequel. And then maybe Qui-Gon takes too much of Elzar from that lineage. And it's just like, yeah, you know, do what you want. The force will figure it out. Like you just, if you think you should go there, just go there. So yeah, it's maybe we're not, meant to read that deep but i feel like the seeds like the the writing of making elves are just a little arrogant in that first interaction i think that is what he wanted to highlight as far as like it's there and there are jedi who like the that chapter even mentions that the only reason he hasn't made master is kind of the similar reason that held qui-gon from being on the council is that he's just a little too full of himself and like already experimenting with the force in a way that other Jedi masters are like, "Ah, I feel uncomfortable like promoting you and you're practicing like voodoo over here. So yeah, I could definitely see kind of the intentionality of planting those seeds. Cause I guess with the, you know, we know that the Jedi do fall. I I would think it would, could be intentional to see that it doesn't come out of nowhere, that there are some of these hints at the beginning from, you know, that could grow into something bigger and and that do grow into something bigger. I could definitely see it as kind of just dropping, you know, dropping the hint, you know, here and there to so that it isn't just like sudden like, oh, wait, oh, I guess the Jedi are, you know, on the on their way down now. But you had mentioned that Mon is not yet master. You know, he's just a Jedi knight and he is, you know, Avar has mentioned, you know, why she, you know, outwardly at least why she has picked him to be her partner for their investigation. 
And Monheer thinks for a little bit about why he thinks, you know, she has picked him, kind of the unspoken nature of their partnership. And he believes that she's picked him in order for him to do well on this mission and to be promoted to master. Um, now that she's trying to help him. And I was thinking, if that is true, you know, again, it's from Mon's perspective, from his, you know, from from his point of view, it presents kind of an interesting dynamic where, you know, no doubt Mon is very capable, but if Avar has put that reasoning ahead of, you know, more sound judgment, if that'll come back to bite her. And I, I, I don't know yet, but it seemed very interesting that if that is the underlying motivation, kind of putting that ahead of what, you know, maybe was a better decision. It was very interesting to, to have that thrown in there where it's like, is she putting their relationship and trying to help him above what she actually should have done in the first place? It, it was, I just thought it was very interesting. I wonder if that'll have some consequences uh, moving forward. It's also the Jedi playing politics. No, mm. it's it's just the Jedi playing Paul. Like that's what I thought as I was reading that part. I was like, oh, like there's no reason for this to be political, and yet Elzar Man has this idea that oh, like she could have chosen anyone, and she kind of leaned on me, and I have this history with the Council, so maybe this is my I told you so moment to to become a tenure track professor. <laughs> um, and it's just like interesting. Like again, to Senator North's point, like lives are hanging in the balance and for like a moment elzar man's like is this my promotion like is this my interview i don't what's happening so like very weird like kind of juxtaposition in his mental as he's telling because i got like more personal vibes than those there's (laughs) a there's an implicit relationship past relationship between the both of them so i mean i'm not saying that he's also not thinking about a promotion but I'm also not saying that he's not thinking about something else because <laughs> uh, we have known that the Jedi of this era are not as uh, strict Chased. with some. I uh, don't want to go in full that direction, uh, but sure, they're not as strict with some, <laughs> some of those uh, ordinances as the prequel trilogy Jedi uh, were. So I'm not sure like if he has those types of thoughts about Avar because those are the kind of the undertones I felt more so than the, because I don't think he cares so much. He's not like Anakin where he's like, oh, I need to be a master and I'm going to kill younglings if I don't get it. Uh, <laughs> Elzar doesn't give me those vibes. So maybe he's more like, you know, he's had a crutch on Avar for a long time. So it's just like, oh, is she trying to get me to be promoted because she, you know, wants to just spend more time with me? I don't know. I think there's something interesting going on between like Estellan, Evar, and and Elzar anyway. So we'll just need to see like how that plays out in the rest of the books. Because so far, it hasn't. They haven't pulled the trigger on anything, but they still keep dropping those little uh, hints. So we'll, we need to see. Very interesting for him to be like, you know, like maybe she picked me because of this or, you know, he wouldn't be, I feel like he wouldn't be focusing on why she chose him to be with her if he wasn't interested in some way, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to read into it a little bit too much for someone just for, for just a friend. Uh, You know, it's very uh, interesting. And, you know, I guess because we, we do then read about uh, Kevin Tarr and I've heard from Alberto that he is quite brilliant and we see that he is very brilliant in, in his ability. Uh, and what he brings up and that they're able to 
track, you know, from his system of satellites and scanners, you know, to track the fragments as they come out of hyperspace in these different emergencies. Uh, and that he needs more droids to be able to effectively do it and to find this, uh, what was it? Um, it's like the black box of the, the legacy bla- yeah. run. <laughs> the black box of the legacy run. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the flight recorder, you know, the yeah, pretty much the black box. Exactly. You know, to, to track these pieces and to be able to, to locate this black box, you know, and, and Avar brings up the question that kind of leads to the close of this chapter where it's like, okay, we can also do that, but. Chancellor so had mentioned what if there's something wrong with hyperspace as a whole and a couple of times in the book it's been brought up that hyperspace has looked like physically looked quote-unquote sickly and so I do think that something is up I don't know with hyperspace as a whole but I definitely think that there's it's not a coincidence that two different people have made the same comment that I think it was Avar Chris and then Captain uh, Cassett in the first chapter that it looks sick for some reason, which is a very interesting way to describe hyperspace. I uh, again, it's a very unique, uh, unique terminology to, to talk about hyperspace, that it looks sick. Um, <laughs> not sick in the great way. Oh, oh that looks sick. Uh, yeah. But sickly. Um <laughs> And that she wants to find out if there's something wrong with it. And Senator Noor brings up that he knows, you know, I know a guy pretty much that uh, he knows a family in the mid rim, the Santeca clan. Yeah. And, you know, my first thought is, is this the same family as Laura Santeca from the sequels? I think it's got to be, you know, I, I don't know how popular the name is, but that was, you know, every now, I guess. It really hasn't happened frequently, I guess, with Yoda and Bacta. And like, there's been few and uh, far between terms that we know from, you know, the Skywalker saga. And I think the Santeca family, the Santeca clan, as he calls it, is uh, it is another one of those references. And I thought that was a very cool way where, you know, Mon and Avar resolve to go meet them and to learn more about hyperspace to see if there is in fact, something that shouldn't be with what's going on and if hyperspace is truly uh, sick or if there's something wrong with it. But a nice little name drop to end the chapter and a name drop to end this episode. What did you both think about, I guess, that uh, kind of that name drop before we before we close out? For me, I was just like, okay, now we're getting to the plot because I immediately went to Lore Santeca kicks off the sequel trilogy, right? Everyone's looking for Luke Skywalker and he has the final piece of, of the map. So when uh, the Santecas get name dropped, I was like, okay, so whatever is actually going on here, we're going to start seeing bits and pieces of it because the Santecas, for some odd reason, happen to have keys that set the galaxy on just like entirely different courses of history. So yeah, it was. I was like, "That's convenient." Um, that that <laughs> Senator Nor is, to Lena So's point in chapter nineteen, well connected enough that he's like, "Oh, you have questions about hyperspace? Like, interesting. Not too many people have questions about it. Not too many people know that you can ask questions about hyperspace." <laughs> but I just so happen to know one of the few families that we, as the readers, know are like, "Oh, they they know a lot of stuff. Like, we didn't know they knew about hyperspace until this point, but." We do know that they they knew where Luke Skywalker was hiding when he did not want to be found. So, like, they are definitely ho- like holding on to some of the galaxy's biggest secrets um, throughout history. Or it's safe to assume that. No, it was definitely exciting to see that name drop because 
I remember watching Force Awakens back in 2015, and then like Max von Sydow is uh, tapped to like play a character in the movie. I'm like, you don't get like a big name actor like Max von Sydow if like he's not going to be important in this movie. Then spoiler alert, dead. And then we <laughs> find out that his name is Laura Santeca, and I'm like, okay, that's a cool name. Too bad we don't know more about this character. Uh, so it's kind of rewarding to like after all the years of the prequels and all the years of like not knowing anything about him i mean yeah he did make an appearance on the rise of kylo kylo ren comic books but beyond that we didn't really know much about who he is or anything surrounding him so to end the chapter and be like i remember that from the sequels we're not canceling them we're actually gonna build on top of them and we're gonna like introduce like his family was kind of was kind of exciting and to your point andres to like have them come in in a position where it kind of explains why he would have a map that leads to Luke Skywalker. It's like, oh, because they were hyperspace prospectors. So, of course he would because they were mapping the galaxy and they know all these routes through everywhere. So it was really exciting to see that name drop. And I think, I mean, without dropping any spoilers here, the journey that we take with that name and that clan is a really exciting one. Like, you know, one that I'm definitely looking forward to see how much more it unfolds. It's, uh, I do, because I recently read the Rise of Kylo Ren comic and he had made a comment, I think, when he, Luke, and Ben uh, were. Uh, exploring some kind of ancient Jedi outpost, he had made a comment that, oh, this is from the High Republic era. So it's, you know, seeing these connections there, I'm definitely interested to see what role the Santeca clan will play. But to know that, yeah, Lor Santeca, you know, it, it it explains it. You know, they're they're explorers, as Senator Newer uh, says. It's, uh, it's nice to see those tie-ins uh, and to make sense of that. But it's because you mentioned um, navigators, Andrew, and I was thinking like, oh, yeah, because the because uh, the Jedi call them prospectors, so it's it's one of those again those little subtle nods of like the Jedi and their infinite wisdom are just like oh the this old miner uh, aren't they miners is essentially what the comet translates to and Senator Nor's like they prefer navigators and you know the truth is like the galaxy wouldn't be able to have these super precious hyperspace lanes that we were just talking about if it weren't for these quote unquote dirty prospectors right like like you call them that but what they actually are is like intergalactic navigators that y'all wouldn't have the the pretty republic that you crone about right. all the time they if were these the people Lewis didn't do Clark the work of star wars basically mm. <laughs> yeah i guess to that point it is very interesting i think the uh, some of the outer rim planets and territories have been called and thought of as backwater but it's like no, they're actually, you know, more sophisticated than given credit to by or credit by from, you know, the likes of Coruscant and all that. It's like, you know, dirty prospectors or whatever. It's like, no, they actually play a very important role that you shouldn't take for granted. It's like, no, these planets in the Outer Rim, they're not backwater. You need to you can't just take them for granted for existing. Like they serve a vital function for their networks or for their for their people. So definitely some you know some some through lines here and there of the perception of the the powerful and influential on those who they perceive as not uh and how that translates but it's been a a great conversation with you both andres and goose uh you know as we close out if the listeners wanted to find you both on uh social media could you let them know where they could do so and where they can listen to and, and find your work. So you can find Triad of the Force almost 
anywhere on social media. So we're primarily on Twitter. So at Triad of the Force. We also post on Instagram at Triad of the Force as well. We relented and opened uh, Facebook. So we're also there if you want to find us. Uh, YouTube also, Triad of the Force. You can find our podcast and video format there. And obviously our podcast is almost anywhere where podcasts are found. Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, uh, Apple Podcasts. So please make sure to listen. If you like it, you know, leave a leave a like, leave a leave a comment, leave a review. We'll definitely appreciate it. And you know, we also have a T Public store where we have some really cool designs that are not branded. So if you don't want to support the Triad of the Force logos or names on it, don't worry. The designs don't have it, but it's pretty nifty stuff if I do say so myself. So uh, if you appreciate what I've said here, please uh, check us out. And y'all have a, a giveaway too. So we have a giveaway for uh, when we reach reach uh, six hundred followers. So. Um, Please make sure to check that out. Thank you. Thanks for the plug. Plugging my plug. <laughs> Anytime. I was like, yo, you can, if you love those T Public uh, shirts, <laughs> hoodies, uh, you, you can score one for free uh, if, you, if you get it on that giveaway. For us, uh, we are at Sith D Minutes. Uh, so Sith, T Y, and then Minutes. Uh, we are on predominantly on Twitter as well. We do have an Instagram. Uh, we have not yet extended beyond that our podcast can be found really again anywhere that podcast exists so overcast spotify apple itunes google cast you, you name it just search uh 60 minutes and you'll find us there if folks want to follow me for some strange reason uh, i'm triple a underscore uh photog and there i definitely yell about a lot more politics and occasionally the Star Wars thoughts that I don't think are refined enough to be on the Twitter account go on my personal account. So if if you're looking for hot takes, that's probably where you can find them. If you're looking for SEO optimized 240 character tweets with some hashtags in them, that's a uh, Sith D minutes. Listeners, I will post the links to Andres and Goose's uh, social media and work in the episode description. Guys, thanks so much for talking some Light of the Jedi, for talking some Star Wars. This was really great thank you so much for making the time yeah thank you no, it was amazing <laughs> yeah thank you for having us before we close out today i'll give our next search your readings discussion question chancellor so made the difficult and controversial decision to close the hyperspace routes around and beyond hetzal until they can find out what happened to the legacy run did she make the right decision or is she needlessly condemning the affected outer rim worlds to suffering until then I will post the question to Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, comment and send your responses on any of those platforms, or you can send them via email to outerrimreadspod at gmail.com with the subject line, search your readings. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to follow Outer Rim Reads on social media to stay connected to the show, you can follow us on Twitter at Outer Rim Read Pod and on Facebook and Instagram at Outer Rim Reads Pod. If you'd like to support the show for as little as $3 a month, you can do so at patreon.com slash Outer Rim Reads. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Geha and hosted by Andrew Geha. This episode was edited by Andrew Geha, and it is produced by Andrew Geha as well as Simon Van Bakum. We'll be back in two weeks with episode 48. So until then, sit back and enjoy. Go try Dex's Diner. I hear it's a peak Coruscanti culinary experience. <laughs>